As Thomas thought back over the events of the last couple weeks, it made his stomach roll. Left, right, left, right, round and round. He felt like he'd been riding on a chariot, pulled by a horse that had been spooked, reins dropped, no one driving the chariot, so to speak, life completely out of control. First, Lazarus was raised from the grave. That's a great thing. After being dead for four days, mind you, he'd never forget, Thomas would, never forget seeing Lazarus waddle out of the grave with still the grave clothes wrapped around him. Then just a couple days later, Jesus marched into Jerusalem, hailed as the savior of the nation. The entire city, it seemed, turned out to celebrate him as the king. He found himself wishing that time was frozen, that that was the day that was every day Christ hailed as king. He had been opposed to Jesus even going back to Jerusalem as the religious leaders were looking for ways to arrest Jesus, and there were rumors they wanted him dead. Even after he had raised Lazarus from the dead, it seemed to solidify their desire to put him to death. Truth was, Thomas was afraid that not only would Jesus be put to death, but all his followers would be put to death. He wished that that's where the story ended, just with rumors. Rumors of trouble, but things quickly escalated. Ten days ago now, Jesus started talking about his leaving us, Thomas thought to himself. He said he was going to go prepare a place for us. We were eating the Passover meal together. Everyone was there, everyone but Judas. He had left the dinner by then, and now we know why. Anyway, Jesus was talking about leaving, going somewhere else. He seemed to want to comfort us in the knowledge that he'd be leaving, but everyone was unnerved by the discussion. So I tried to ask him some clarifying questions, like, where are you going? Where, how can we find you? We, we don't know where you're going. Jesus, he said, I am the way. And I wasn't sure what to make of that. Jesus was speaking in code again. I felt like he was often speaking in code. I am the way. After the Passover dinner was completed, we sang a hymn together, and then we walked to a nearby garden. Jesus loved this particular place. He seemed really low that night. He wanted to pray, and in hindsight, my bet, it, my bet is that he knew it was coming, and he didn't want to tell us, didn't want to burden us, sure enough. In the middle of the night, Judas showed up again, this time with soldiers. I can't believe I actually liked Judas. Peter told me later that Jesus was taken immediately to the Sanhedrin, then to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate. What a farce of justice this all was. Barabbas set free, a condemned criminal, while the kindest man who'd ever lived, held in chains, condemned, beaten, flogged, then paraded back through town carrying his own crossbeam and hung until death. The same people that had celebrated Jesus' entry into the city cried, crucify him. Just when you thought the ride couldn't get any wilder, and honestly, I'm not sure whether this is good news or bad news, but the other disciples are now insisting they've seen Jesus raised. Jesus alive. I don't doubt that the body's gone. Everybody's confirmed the fact that the, the tomb is empty. But believing Jesus is raised is a whole other matter, alive again. And of course, I, I wasn't with them when Jesus supposedly appeared to them. 
At that point, I was just trying to keep my head above water. And really, I just want to move on already. It's been three years. It's been a lot in three years. And I know, I know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which, again, it's amazing. I'll never forget it. But to raise yourself from the dead, how, how does that actually work? Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and called him back to life. But how could Jesus raise himself from the dead? Finally, I told my friends, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into the side, I'll not believe. Do you ascribe to the philosophy that seeing is believing? I know that we all would prefer to see things before we believe, but we are, in fact, surprisingly accustomed to believing many things without first seeing them. Give it a thought, you'll see what I mean. In fact, we are thoroughly accustomed to simply taking people at their word. For example, we trust the doctor's word that her diagnosis is on, on point, and that her prescription will do the job for us. That the medicine the doctor offers us will actually make us better, not make us worse. And we trust the pharmacists that they know what they're doing when they do the chemistry around the drugs, and we receive it through the little portal window, and we take it home and on good faith. We, we believe that this prescription is going to help us. We trust mechanics when they say the minivan's ready for a cross-country trip. It won't leave you high and dry in the middle of nowhere on your two-week vacation west or whatever, right? We, we trust our mechanic when he says the minivan needs a repair. We trust them even though the name of the part that needs repair we can't pronounce, we've never heard of before. Oh, the flam shooter's broken. Okay, well, how much will the flam shooter cost to repair? And we open up. Give them a credit card. We are completely accustomed to accepting the testimony of experts on virtually every topic. Doctors, pharmacists, mechanics, lawyers, coaches, teachers, you name it. In fact, imagine how life would grind to a halt if we were to only take action if we were only to believe after verifying every claim with our own two eyes. It's safe to say that life can't operate this way. We don't have the luxury of verifying every claim. We don't have the energy to say, well, I'm, I'm not going to take action on that until I see it myself. We simply don't have the ability to verify every claim. The truth is life has to get on, work has to get done. And so we take many, many reasonable claims on faith. So why is it when we come to spiritual matters that we so often adopt a posture of something on par with Thomas's posture? I'm not gonna believe until I see it with my own two eyes, touch it with my hands. Thomas insisted that seeing Jesus was the only way that he believed that Jesus was really raised. If this is our posture, we must be honest with ourselves. 
that we're requiring a level of certainty on spiritual matters that we don't require on any other area of life. And the disciple John knew this, in fact. John, who writes the gospel, his gospel, he knew this was the case when he wrote, and it's the very reason that he wrote his account of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, if seeing is the only way to believe, then there was no reason for John to bother writing. Are you following me here? There's no reason to even meet this morning. There's no reason to even meet this morning if seeing is the only way to believe. Because Jesus has already ascended into the heavens and we're not going to get to see him until he returns to claim his church, which may be quite a while. But John didn't think that seeing was the only or even, get this, or even the best way to believe. John actually says it's not the best way to find yourself believing. That's, in fact, why he wrote his gospel. Look at what John says is the appropriate basis for our belief this morning. From, and from, uh, for a frame of reference, these verses are the last verses in his gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, I took the time to write this, so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes his account of Jesus' life so that we might read it and believe this morning. In other words, John expects that while we may want to see Jesus, as Thomas did, before believing, John realized that we'll not have that opportunity and that we should no less believe based on his eyewitness testimony. We should believe John this morning for the same reason we believe doctors and lawyers and mechanics and coaches and teachers. We should believe based upon their expertise. In this case, John's eyewitness testimony of the person of Christ. John is an expert in the raised Savior. He lived with him. He traveled with him for three years. He witnessed his miracles firsthand. He was there for the transfiguration. He was there for the ascension as well as the resurrection. So just as we might similarly believe a doctor's diagnosis or a pharmacist's prescription or a mechanic's explanation, John says we should believe him. Here's the point. We take so many others at their word because they have training, they have experience, they have the training and the experience needed to speak into these issues. And on the basis, on that basis, our faith in John's testimony can and should lead, lead us to believing as well. So whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or simply here this morning checking out the claims of Christ, belief in Jesus' resurrection is completely reasonable. Admittedly, it requires faith, but having faith that Jesus is raised from the grave is, is reasonable. Every bit as reasonable as the myriads of other experts 
whose testimony we accept on the basis of faith. We took our car into the shop recently. It was leaking oil. In fact, uh, it left the stain on the, the pristine concrete driveway of a friend. The mechanic looked it over, diagnosed the problem, leaky valve cover gasket. If that sounds like a flam shooter type of uh, explanation to you, it did to me as well. According to the mechanic, the, the fix was equally clear. This is the problem, this is the fix, and this is the cost. We believe that mechanics can fix our car, and that belief is completely reasonable based upon their training and experience. The same is true with the resurrection. It takes faith to believe because we can't see him ourselves any more than we can fix a leaky, or any more than I can fix a leaky valve cover gasket all by myself. But believing that Jesus is raised is completely reasonable. We have expert testimony this morning. It would be unreasonable for you to believe that I could fix a leaky car, right? A valve cover gasket. I have no training. I have very little experience working on cars. I've changed blinker fluid. Good, you're listening. But it's completely reasonable for us to believe that Jesus was seen by John. And it's completely reasonable because John spent three years with him. John saw him perform miracles, feed 5,000 in a single sitting, walk on water. So here's the big question, ready? If it is so reasonable to believe that Jesus is raised from the grave, then why didn't Thomas believe? I've spent the first part of my sermon insisting it's reasonable for us and we take all types of things on faith all the time and that we should take John's account of the resurrection on faith and believe because he, he's an expert and provides eyewitness testimony. But if that's the case, why didn't Thomas believe? After all, Thomas had every bit as much expertise when it came to Jesus as John did. But Thomas doubted. Even after being told by the other disciples. Here's why. Because seeing is not all that there is to believing. It could be that what we're demanding today or what we have a tendency to, to demand of God is not even what we actually need to believe. In other words, believing is not simply an intellectual activity. It's not simply a matter of weighing empirical evidence. Believing is actually a matter of both the head, that is knowing something, weighing evidence that's objective, as well as a matter of the heart. which involves emotion. And in many cases, what our heart is feeling trumps what our mind has good reason to believe. I'll give you an example right out of scripture, okay? Over and over in Jesus's ministry, he would work miracles. And instead of everyone who, witnessing, who witnessed the miracle, instead of everybody believing in his claims, there were always some who did not believe even when they saw the miracle with their own eyes. Time and time again, Jesus would perform a miracle 
In fact, like raising Lazarus from the dead, four days after he had been uh, prepared for the grave, wrapped in grave clothes, placed in a tomb, stone rolled over it, four days later, even after decomposition would have set in, everybody saw the miracle. Some believed in the claims of Christ to be God, some did not. Can you imagine seeing someone raise another person from the dead and the response being, kill that person? Kill the miracle worker? That was, in fact, the response. By some, to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. For some, and most notably, and this is, this is in fact, fascinating to me, it was the religious leaders who, when seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, that concretized their desire to kill him. (laughs) Instead of falling at his feet and worshiping him, that solidified their desire to see him put to death. I'll give you another example of seeing is not always believing. When Jesus delivered the demoniac, uh, the one that was from the region of the Gerasenes and had, when asked uh, what the name of the demon was, it responded legion because there were many demons in in this man. It was, it was the man who was delivered from demons and then those demons went into a herd of pigs and the herd of pigs was driven immediately over a cliff to their death. Well, the disappearance of the herd or the death of the herd, the shepherds ran into town to explain, hey, this isn't our fault. The pigs you entrusted to us are now all dead. It brought the whole town out to see what had happened to their herd. Do you remember what their response was? They wanted Jesus to leave. Even though the demoniac, formerly naked, chained, out of his mind, and alone in a cemetery, he lived among the graves, even though when they arrived, he was clothed, in his right mind, sitting, In other words, behaving as a normal person. Even though they saw a crazed man now healed, their response was, no, 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 you need to go, Jesus. Seeing is not always believing. Thomas had every reason to believe the other disciples' report. After all, they had traveled together for three years. Thomas had seen Jesus work miracle after miracle. Why wouldn't he believe the testimony of his fellow disciples? Why incredulity, a willful disbelief? Well, consider the emotion of Thomas and what he must have felt. After Jesus' death, how, how he must have been wrestling in his heart. Imagine his discouragement. It's not hard to see the role discouragement would play in his refusal to believe. Remember, Thomas didn't say, I can't believe. He says, I won't believe. I won't believe. He was discouraged to the point of unbelief, not just simple doubt. Remember, it was Thomas who was afraid to return to Jerusalem, believing that Jesus would die at the hands of the religious leaders. He heard, maybe he had a high EQ or something. He knew the rumors. He said, well, John actually quotes him, let's all go back to Jerusalem and die. Kind of a cynicism 
to Jesus' response to, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. Sure enough, Jesus loses his life. All the disciples scatter. It's Thomas who, on the eve of his death, Jesus' death, there at the Passover meal, Jesus is talking about, I'm going to go away from you. And it's Thomas who says, well, where are you going? How will we know where you are? And receive the response, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's coded for Thomas. It didn't sit well with him. He He didn't understand it. Now, sure enough, Jesus is dead. He's gone on ahead. We're all alone. Do you feel the discouragement? There is a subtle phrase in John chapter 20. It's easy just to blow by. It's on the screen that describes what we're to make of Thomas. If you're an underliner, I would encourage you to underline one of the 12. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, just noting he has a twin. But then John says, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. This is late in John's narrative about following Jesus. It's it's not news to us that Thomas is a disciple at this point. If you're reading through the Gospel of John, you're not not surprised that Thomas is one of the twelve. Why does he point it out here? This phrase, one of the twelve, is subtle. It doesn't jump off the page at us, but it's significant in that it is used to describe only one other disciple. Matthew uses it to describe another disciple. Mark uses it to describe another disciple. And John, I'll give you one guess who the other disciple is who's described this way. Anybody want to take a guess? Judas. Judas. Great job. The disciple who betrayed Jesus was routinely described in each of the Gospels as one of the twelve. As if the authors were making sure that we understand Jesus had a traitor in his midst throughout his earthly ministry. So whenever Judas' name appears in, in the Gospels, it's often fall, followed by this description. This description, one of the twelve, Judas, one of the twelve. John appears to be implying that Thomas is not with the disciples when Jesus initially appeared to them. Because now it's a week later. Jesus has already appeared to the disciples. Thomas wasn't with them, one of the twelve. John seems to be implying that this not being with is akin to, similar in a way to Judas not being with the disciples any longer. It seems that John's implying that Thomas's discouragement is causing him to potentially abandon Jesus altogether. That's no small matter. He wasn't with the disciples on resurrection evening when Jesus first appeared to them, now a week has passed. And the writer of the gospel seems to be saying, Thomas hangs in the balance here. Recognizing that we take so many things on faith in life, perhaps many who wrestle with believing in the resurrection of Christ struggle not with intellectual barriers, but with emotional 
What role might discouragement in life play in our not believing Christ is raised this morning? And I ask that of both non-believers. If you're a non-believer here this morning checking out the claims of Christ, we're glad you're here. Hope you feel at home to ask your questions. But if you're a believer as well, we have varied level of doubt in our lives. I told you earlier, I was tremendously encouraged that two people stopped me to pray for healing this morning. That's an exercise of faith. But we all face doubts to a certain degree. What part of emotional discouragement might doubt be playing in our lives and keeping us from the easy yoke and the light burden of following after Christ more fully, the joy and the peace that are ours in Christ. What doubt might we be struggling with that's fueling disobedience in our lives? What doubt might we be struggling with that's fueling disconnection? It's not just that Thomas's faith is teetering, apparently, which, but it's also Thomas has been culled out from the herd, so to speak. I mean, he's out on his own, not a safe place spiritually. He's outside of fellowship. He's not physically with the people of God right now. Discouragement. I vividly remember being 12, sitting on the back pew of a church, having been dragged there by my mother week in, week out, unwilling to participate, I sat on the back pew while everybody else stood and they sang passionately, raising their hands to the Lord and preaching to each other. That's what singing is, right? I sat full of discouragement and consequentially doubt. The most I could say at that time was, I hope what they're singing about is true. My parents were going through a divorce. It was a hard time emotionally. Mom rightly dragged me to church, but I sat discouraged on the back pew. I sat doubt-filled on the back pew. Week in, week out, listening to them sing to each other. After Jesus' death, most likely all that Thomas could say was that he hoped the resurrection was true. Things had not gone the way Thomas wanted them to go. It closed him off emotionally to believing. This morning, I want to urge us to all be honest with an unwillingness to believe at some levels because of discouragement emotionally. Belief may be clearly seen, and we can, ass- we can assent to it mentally, but what emotion are we wrestling with? It causes us to doubt that God loves us, cares for us, is with us, never leaves us or forsakes us, hears our prayers, answers our prayers. Folks, there's good reason to believe even though we will not see Jesus ourselves this morning unless he returns, there's good reason to believe he's raised, seated to the right hand of the throne of God, that he sent his spirit at Pentecost and gives his spirit, his physical presence to any that believe in him and are trusting There's good reason to believe because of what took place a week after the resurrection in Thomas' life. The verses are on the screen. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. On the authority of God's word this morning, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting. Whatever your doubts are, stop doubting and believe that God loves you and has cared for you in Christ and you have all that you need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Another word for blessed is happy. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. Happy are those who don't allow their fears and frustrations and doubts and discouragements in life to keep them from experiencing the peace of God, the joy of God. Jesus enters the room and he says, peace be with you. I wonder how much of our emotional turmoil is keeping us from a full-chested belief and so we're not enjoying the peace of God. Peace be with you. On the authority of God's word this morning, peace be with you because Christ has been raised. Sitting on the back pew of the church that my mother dragged me to week after week, God slowly softened my heart, moved me from hoping the resurrection's true to affirming my Lord and my God, right? That's Thomas's response. Affirming the resurrection is true. Finally standing with other believers and singing with confidence as a teenager that God is good and loves me. Just as God cared for discouraged Thomas, I slowly realized that God had cared for me before I'd even been born by sending Christ to give his life as a ransom for me. Slowly, I was able to see that all that had happened in my parents' divorce was not God's fault, but God was repairing the damage done by sin in our lives. And that he had a plan for me, my whole family. What's our takeaway this morning? Stop doubting. Believe. Be happy. Blessed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and, and believe. Be happy this morning and confess Christ as Savior. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Do what Thomas did, my Lord and my God, based on the expert testimony of John who records Jesus' words that say, I got it, you want to see and believe, but happier, actually happier are those who haven't seen and, and believe. Let your mouth respond to what your heart's believing and your head affirms as completely reasonable in, in so many areas of life. You can do that right where you're seated this morning. Just saying, my Lord and my God, And Paul says, you'll be saved. You start that journey. Does this mean that all of a sudden I'll know everything? That there'll be, no, Thomas didn't move from doubt-filled to omniscient. <laughs> he 
Thomas moved from doubt-filled to full of faith. There was still a lot he didn't know, a lot he had to trust. It's still a walk of faith, but it's completely reasonable to follow Christ in faith. We'll still wrestle, but based on the testimony of Scripture, we can live at peace. We can carry the easy yoke and the light burden as we, as we believe more and more and affirm that Christ has been raised. Let me pray for us toward that end. Father, we thank you for your care of Thomas, your physical care of him, showing your son's raised body to him. We thank you that, he pres- that you preserved his faith. It appears that Thomas almost lost his faith, was not with the disciples, outside fellowship. Father, if, that's, if there are some in this room skating on the edge of faith, we ask that you'd care for us. You bring us closer. Father, based on the authority of your word, we want to stop doubting. We want a more full-chested belief, wholehearted belief. We pray this for your son's glory and our good. Amen.